contemplating Easter this weekend, and two days ago I preached at a uh, Good Friday service, our combined Good Friday service, and to thinking, you know, we, we see a lot of pastel colors and, you know, eggs and candies, and I've got no problem with any of that, right? Um, but it's Easter and Good Friday, what we're talking about is kind of gross, you know, tombs and graves and dead people and death. We don't, we don't usually find ourselves comfortable talking about these things. Um, as a society, we protect ourselves from the things that make us feel uncomfortable. We don't like our neighbors, so we pull into the garage. And just before pulling to the garage, we have our tinted windows drawn all the way up. And we want the garage that's attached, so we don't even spend 30 seconds walking from the garage to the house and neighbors looking at us all nosy. We remember moving into an old neighborhood, maybe, and there's no fences. What's the first thing that our generation does when they move in? Put up a fence. Don't look at me. And we carry that right into dealing with death. We don't like it. It wasn't very long ago when the families would do the care of the body. You even read about ancient times. The family would bring the perfumes and the spices and the linens and embalm the body. Well, now we have the mortician that behind closed doors. We don't even know what they're doing. In days, many find themselves passing away, dying, not at home, surrounded by loved ones, but in a hospital or a hospice surrounded by tubes. Now, I'm not saying it's sin or it's wrong. I'm just saying that as a society, we've delegated the job of dealing with death. We don't like it. We don't want to think about it. But if we don't allow the gravity of death to impact us, then our celebration of a resurrection is going to be small. Who cares? If I don't care about death, what do I care about a resurrection? I was reminded this, uh, this week of an interesting man by the name of Ted Williams. Williams, many say, is the greatest hitter of the game of baseball. And there's a lot of... Uh, he was uh, a 400 hitter, if you know what that means. That's impressive. His whole career. Leaves baseball to go fight in World War II. Comes back and just starts hitting again. Like, some guys can't recover from spring break. You know, and this guy just comes back from a war... And he's just, he's, just, he's just hitting him left and right. Leaves again to go fight as a combat aviator in the Korean War. Comes back. Hall of Fame numbers again. Okay? Now, when he died, I think it was 2002. When he died, some of you go, wow, he knows a lot of ba- ba- baseball. Nah, he was, he was a Red Sox player, so it's like, I got to do my duty. <laughs> he died in 2002, and his family supposedly, allegedly, had made a pact with him that instead of allowing death to rob them of each other, we'll sign a pact. It was done on a napkin at some restaurant. We'll sign a pact where instead of being cremated or buried, we'll be frozen in the hopes that one day technology will catch up with the cryogenic freezing process or whatever it's called, and be able to reverse it and resuscitate the person that was frozen 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, whatever it is. 
To this day, Ted Williams is frozen. And as his family is passing away, they are joining the deal. And I think to myself, even if he's brought back, he's going to have to do it again. Because death can't be conquered. Even if we find ways, technologically or medical advancements, to hold it off a little bit longer, you're still going to die. And so there's no way to not deal with death. I want to take you to a different passage than maybe a typical Easter uh, message would do. And I want to take you to the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, please slip your hand up and we'll bring one to you. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. Take it home. It's, it's our gift to you. I see a hand in the back. We want to make sure that you see what's here. And we don't want you to leave uh, having been impressed by anything I say. I want you to see what Scripture has to say to you. If you flip to the New Testament, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in John. The book of John, chapter 11. And John has a lot to say about death and life. He has a lot to say about death and life. John chapter 11. And we find ourselves in a story where uh, Jesus had friends. I mean, he was friendly to everyone, mostly. Uh, He had some nasty things to say to the Pharisees. But he had certain friends that were his best friends that he spent lots of time with. And one particular family was two sisters and a brother, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But Lazarus was sick. He's ill. And he's going to die. He's going to die, Jesus. He's dying, Jesus. Okay, Jesus, he's dead. He's dead, but maybe you can resuscitate him. Day one, day two, day three, day four, Jesus does nothing for his best friend. Disciples are wondering about it. His friends are wondering about it. If you find John 11, I want you to look down at verse 17. And here we have people dealing with death right in front of their face. And here's Jesus. And they want to confront him about reality. Martha's bold. If you've read other portions of Scripture, she's the one that likes to bark and she speaks with what's on her mind. Verse 17, is now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That's not a surprise to Jesus. He knew that. In fact, in the paragraph previous, we realize uh, uh, friends wanted him to rush to the scene. And he said, no, I'm going to hang back. He intentionally wanted it to be four days. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Anyone in here pray like that? God, had you intervened, this wouldn't happen in my life. God messed up. I go back and forth on this. Some commentators say she wasn't being rude. She was just saying, wow, the faith that she has. She believed that he could have been here. But I can't help to, it sounds a little, you should have done something and you didn't. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She has hope. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha, being the good theological student that she is, she knows eschatology, she knows the study of the end times, and she knows that there will be a resurrection of the dead in the end. I know, I get it, that day is coming. She says in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And he goes, no, you don't get it. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. So her first response, he says, Lazarus is going to rise again. She doesn't go, how is that possible? That's not possible. She's not Nicodemus. She goes, yeah, I get it. I know that there's going to be a day when those who believe will be risen and have life. And I know Lazarus was a believer, and he's going to rise and have life. I know that on that day, there's going to be a special day, a special celebration where the dead rise again, and we're given new bodies, and we're glorified, and we don't know how much she knew, but she understood the basic concept. There's going to be a special graduation ceremony where we get our robes and the tassels, we throw our hats in the air, sin is behind us, and now we enter into glory as risen people in Christ. But Jesus wants to correct her theology because she's connecting the specialness of that moment with that day. And Jesus is saying, it's not about the day, it's about me. It's not about the theology that you know. It's about the person that you know. And what I'm telling you is that this theological concept you have of some theoretical resurrection someday is standing right in front of you now. It's not about a day. It's about a person. I'm the resurrection and I'm the life, not some special day. There will be that day, but that day is only special because Jesus does what he does. And what does Jesus do? He conquers the unconquerable. He conquers death itself. That's why when he asks her, do you believe, it's remarkable that she now says, not some son of God who we're going to wait for sometime in the future, but the son of God who's doing what? Coming into the world. He's bringing the specialness of that day into the world now, today, because he's here. It's life-transforming power. It's resurrection power. And he says, I am the resurrection, and the life. There is no resurrection and there is no life outside of me. Verse 28, he confronts Mary. You remember Martha went out to re- meet Jesus. She has a word to say with Jesus. You should have done something and you didn't. Well, okay, I know you can fix it, but you should not let it happen in the first place. Maybe Mary didn't go out because she's not as confrontative, she's not as combative, she's sheepish, or maybe she was just a little more upset and she wasn't ready to talk right now. But Jesus calls her out. I want to talk now. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, hey, the teacher's here and is calling for you. Verse 29, and when she heard it, Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Mary's got a crowd following her. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now what do you think Mary and Martha were talking about together four days before Jesus got there? You know when an investigator splits up the witnesses and asks what happened and asks what happened and they say the exact same thing, right? You know that either that's the truth or they got their story straight. Mary and Martha were for four days talking to each other about the fact that Jesus wasn't there. He could have been there and he could have fixed the problem, but he didn't. He delayed. What was he doing? What was he up to? We don't know how much they know, but John is letting us in on the fact that he wasn't doing anything but waiting i mean he intentionally did it she's upset with this but what they don't understand is what he had already told the disciples earlier in this chapter if you look at the beginning of chapter 11 you might have to just turn page but or just bring your eyes up to that first paragraph of this chapter it says there was a certain man who was ill lazarus of bethany the village of mary and her sister martha Right, so this man was fallen ill, and they told Jesus in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then verse 4, Jesus heard it and said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus, your best friend is sick, and he's going to die. And Jesus says, he's going to end up dying. He's not going to end up dead. This whole thing is happening for my glory to be revealed to you. And they thought his glory was going to be revealed by stopping death from happening. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was to let something happen that can't be explained any other way. Well, I gave him CPR. Oh, Jesus must have known about CPR before we knew about it, you know. He must have had some secret medicine. Maybe he rubbed Vicks on his chest and said a prayer in Spanish, you know. And then he popped up. Who knows what he had? Who knows what kind of trick he had up his sleeve? No, he wanted them dead, and he wanted them really dead. Day one goes by. Day two goes by. Day three goes by. Day four goes by. And Mary and Martha are like, what happened to the glory thing? He says, the reason why this is happening is because the Son of God is going to be glorified through it. That's Jesus' M.O. You think back to chapter 9, those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of John, the disciples and Jesus came across a man who was blind from birth. You remember that dude? Blind from birth. It wasn't like an accident, chemical spill or something, you know. Uh, No, from a little baby, he could never see. And the disciples asked him a theological question, a, a question that they have not been able to figure out. Whose fault is it that this man is blind? Who sinned such that this man was born blind? Was it his sin or was it parents' sin? And you see their dilemma, right? If it's his sin, but he was a baby, did he sin in the womb? Or did God foresee that he was going to sin in a certain way, so he struck him with blindness in the womb? Or 
Is it the parents that sinned? Well, that's a dilemma too, right? The parents did it. He didn't do it. Why should the baby suffer for something the parents did? So there's a dilemma. And they see the, baby, the, the man, the full-grown man, but everyone in the village knows this. He's been born, he was born blind. And they ask Jesus, why was he born blind? Was he born blind because his parents sinned, or was he born blind because he sinned? And Jesus said, neither. In this case, this man was born blind so that the Father will show his glory so that the father will demonstrate and reveal the glory of the son through it and then he goes to that man heals him of his blindness and now he can see and jesus uses that as a picture of what i do i make the blind see and the reason why he was born blind is so that i could show you that picture we have that same habit of trying to connect every single bad thing that happens in our lives to something i must i must have done something Was it me? Was it my dad? It was my dad. My dad did it. Unbelievable. I'm suffering for the nonsense that my dad did, or my mom, or my cousin, or maybe some of us are more introspective, and we're wondering, what did I do? What did I do? My neighbor doesn't have this disease. My friend didn't lose a loved one. Why do I have to suffer this? And you look in your life, and you don't see something that matches that kind of punishment. And what John is teaching us here in the story of his chronicling Jesus' ministry is that everything doesn't always correlate one-to-one with something you did. In that instance, what it correlated with was what Jesus wants to do through that pain. In other words, he can let some devastating circumstance hurt you. Not because you did something to deserve it, Not because your parents did something to deserve it. But so that when you turn to him and he rescues you out of that, the glory goes to him. He doesn't want to save strong people. He wants to save weak people. Christianity is not about people coming who've got all their stuff together. Christianity is about people coming who recognize they don't have their stuff together. And everyone else who thinks they do are self-deceived. Jesus is a fixer. And so by God's sovereign grace, allow big problems in your life to get you on your knees to recognize you can't solve the problem. You need someone whose life itself to fix it. And until you realize that, friend, you will never be a Christian. You can go to church. You can dress up. You can just come on Easter. It doesn't matter what you do. You can go to Sunday school. You can teach Sunday school. If you think on one day, on that last day, you're going to be resurrected to eternal life because you did good stuff, you're in trouble. The only person that's allowed into heaven is someone who goes, I, I have nothing. I have nothing. And so what God will do is sovereignly orchestrate things to happen in your life. Yes, sometimes it kicks your teeth in. Sometimes it's loss and pain and grief. But God can allow those things into your life to get you to the point where you recognize your need for him. Now I've got you, he says. And that's eternity. Here he has his best friend. He could have rushed to the scene. He didn't. He waited instead. Martha comes out. You could have have intervened. Had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary comes out and says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, verse 32. 
verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When he saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, in this particular instance, the way it describes Jesus' reaction, it's easy for us to think, okay, he saw people crying and he wanted to cry too because he loves them. Even though he knows what he's going to do, he's just in the moment with them. And I think that's partially true. God never inflicts you with pain in your life and he sits back, ha, 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 oh, you wake up from that one, bang, how about that one now? No. He feels the pangs. He feels the pain. He empathizes with the grief. Just like a parent taking a kid in for a big needle shot. It's not fun for the parent. It's not fun for the kid. Why is the parent doing that then? The kid doesn't get it. It's for their own good. But there's something else here I didn't discover until I was studying it for this week. And uh, those of you who are uh, German, I have a little homework assignment for you. Go home, grab your German Bible, and where it says deeply moved, look at what the German word is for deeply moved. It doesn't mean what it means in English. When we say, oh, he was deeply moved, it's like you're touched. Aw. Aw, it's so moving. Oh, that, that, that movie was so moving. It moved me. But that's not what this word means. This word means anger. You might even have a little footnote that takes you to the really tiny font that you need another pair of glasses to look at, that little magnifying credit card to throw down on there to show you what it says in the little footnote. Indignant. I find that fascinating. Martha approaches him. You should have been here. And he's like, hey, he's going to rise again. She goes, yeah, I theologically know that. He's like, no, you need to personally know that. Not too bad. Not too harsh, right? Corrected her, but it wasn't harsh. Then Mary comes out with a bunch of Jews behind. They're all weeping. And then she says the same thing. And he looks around as she says it. And he sees everybody crying. And he's angry. I think it's a mix. I think he's angry that people have to deal with death. I think he's upset that death is even a thing. I think he's upset that people that he loves have to go through weeping and have to go through pain. So he does empathize because he knows. He knows that pain. And it says in verse 35, Jesus wept. But I think it's also true that he's upset because there's unbelief. He looks around him and everyone's crying because they think Lazarus is just gone. They don't know what he can do. And Jesus doesn't like that. Jesus doesn't like it when you don't know what he can do. Remember when he's on the boat taking a nap and the boat is about to come apart and they're all going to die? The author even tells us of the gospel to give us a little detail. Now you have to remember, they have very limited parchment. You can only get a couple words in before you've got to dip the thing in ink again. Real annoying to write. So details, real small, real, real sparse on the details. But he goes to tell us, he licks the quill, dips the ink. Jesus had a pillow. You ever read that and you're like, who cares? Why don't you describe the blanket that he had? 
He's trying to say these sailors are bailing water with buckets. They're trying to control the mast. They're, they're trying to grab the ropes. They hear the creaking of the wood. The boat is coming apart. And they take a peek down there. And in the flash of lightning, they can quick get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing. And he puffed the pillow, man, before he went to sleep. What is he doing? Right? So they wake him up. And they tell him, what are you doing? Don't you see that we're dying? Why don't you try to help us? Why don't you try to save us? But when they mean save us, they don't mean tell the storm to stop. They mean grab a bucket, dude. Grab a rope. Help. Or, or with one of your special prayers to the Father. He'll listen to you better than he listens to us. Pray a special prayer that the Father would do something. Jesus rebuked them. He didn't go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, let me hold on a second. Ooh, a crazy dream. Okay. He rebukes them first. While it's storming, he takes a time out for rebuke. Chip is, he's probably yelling. They can't hear him. Chip is about to toss over. Why do you have such little faith? Jesus is upset tells us who he is and we go yeah 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 yeah. i get it i get it help me help me with this do this instead and he's like no you don't get it i don't operate on your timetable i operate in a way that demonstrates to you my glory and when he tells the storm to stop they think back to the book of jonah jonah had a storm and the way to stop that storm was to throw jonah off the boat so that god would stop the storm But the way Jesus stops a storm is by speaking to the storm. He stops it because he's not Jonah, he's God. And you don't get that, and that disappoints Jesus. Here he has a bunch of people weeping, a bunch of people telling him he should have been there. Had he been there, he could have avoided it. But now that he didn't do it, now that he wasn't there, now it's unavoidable. Now he's dead. Now he's in the tomb. It's too late. And this angers him. This angers him because he sees how our unbelief is killing us. So, he said in verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Here's the accusation again. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, remember chapter 9? Couldn't he also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again. There's that word again. He's upset. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for the... (laughs) For he has been dead four days. It's going to stink, man. Forget it now. You know, begging him to help, do all this stuff. And then now it's like, no, never mind. It's, you know, Febreze hasn't been invented yet. Just forget it. We'll see him on that day. Jesus, forget it. It's going to stink. And he says, take away the stone. He says there in verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, we see again why he's upset. They're still, fo- they're still putting Jesus in the box. 
if he doesn't fix this particular problem in front of me, he must not be who I thought he was. And he's like, I'm bigger than that stupid box. I'm going to show you the glory of God. Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that I'm a little upset, don't you? He's like, Lord, I know I don't have to pray this, and I know I certainly don't have to pray it out loud, but I'm praying it out loud so that the people weeping around me who don't believe what I can do can hear me. And I hope this helps them figure it out. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And his feet bound in strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. If you just close your eyes for a second and imagine that scene, that's probably pretty funny. His hands are bound and his feet are bound and he's all wrapped up. Dude came out. How did he come out? You ever see a potato sack race? Like that. Not real graceful. He's probably mumbling and trying to say something. He's probably standing around, their eyes like fosters, their mouths gaping open. So Jesus has to prompt them to do what should have been obvious. Unbind him, let him go. Unbind him and let him go. So Jesus uses this as a picture of death. The ultimate thing that takes everyone out. And then life. Life on the other side of death because Jesus is over death. Jesus reigns over death. That's what resurrection means. And that's what it means that he's the resurrection and the life. To totally show off and to really seal the deal. This is just a picture. real thing is Jesus' own death. It's amazing that he can speak to someone else's dead body and raise it from the dead. But he's dead. And then on the right time, day one, day two, day three, maybe a Jedi waved with the stone. I don't know. Maybe an angel did it. Maybe, maybe he Jedi waved it. I don't know what he did. Stone rolls. He gets out. And he conquers death. Unbinds him and let him go. That's Jesus' desire for you. You are bound to the bondage of sin and death. And you will stay that way forever unless Jesus speaks into your life. You believe in him like he told Martha. Do you believe it? Because if you believe it, it's not for you. But if you believe it, you embrace it, then it's for you. What's for you? Eternal life. It is appointed unto every man and woman to die once and after that to face judgment. After judgment, it's eternal life or eternal death. I probably don't say that enough in here. I probably don't say that enough in here because I assume, right? I assume Christians get that. Christians are supposed to get that. Eternal life, John three sixteen, right? Give your life to Jesus. Are you saved? Saved from what? Eternal death. Saved to what? Eternal life. And we assume it. And so sometimes I'm up here and I'm talking about the solas of the Reformation and just unpacking the nitty-gritty specifics of the gospel. But just basic plain truth that you can explain to any child. We all will experience a physical death, but after that, there's a resurrection. 
And everyone's going to be either resurrected to eternal death or resurrected to eternal life. I mean, this is all over Scripture, guys. It's not like one little slice. It's all over. His parable about the sheep and the goats that get separated. The people that come to him, Lord, I did this and I did that and I was real churchy and I did all this stuff. And he's like, nope, you're in the resurrected to death camp. Most of what we know about hell comes from Jesus himself. Not from some surly Old Testament writer. Very little. Jesus himself gives us most, by far, what we know about eternal damnation. So my plea to you this morning, for the Christian, stop putting all your investment in this life. It's such a tiny slice. It's such a tiny, temporary slice of the eternal timeline. What are you doing with it? Don't let death scare you. Don't let death keep you distracted from the things that you should be making life really about. If you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you know, you just popped in here out of respect or something, that's okay. We're glad you're here. But I hope you think about what death means. What's your hope? A cryogenic tube? Are you going to freeze yourself to buy a couple more months if we make a discovery to get you out of that? And then what? Darkness, blackness, nothingness? I tell you, one man came to tell you what's up, and it's worse than nothingness. But there's hope. There's one way to conquer death, one. And that's through the one who is the resurrection and the life. I hope you know him. And if you don't, the best thing you can do is grab somebody in here after the service is over. Myself, anyone on the worship team, anyone wearing a green lanyard, welcome team, and say, I, I, I need to know him. I need to, get, I need to get this right because I'm not ready for death. And if you think death just comes to 92-year-olds in a hospice, you need to read the news more. You don't know what time you have left. And if you don't know Christ, you're not ready for death, period. If you know the resurrector, if you know the resurrection himself, there's your hope. And if God is using a season of pain right now to get your attention, then we can be glad for that. Not glad for the pain itself, but glad for what it might produce. If it's a splash of cold water that's needed to wake you up, there are many of us in here that have that same testimony. God used something crippling in our lives to get our attention to get us to focus on the matters of life and death, the matters that ultimately count, and to reckon with our Savior, the resurrection and the life. I want to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to close in a song, and I hope that you can join me as we sing this song uh, in faith and in celebration that we have this awesome hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, if you're able, please stand and let's, let's sing together.